This is Paul Eckert with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we look each week at some of the key stories in the region as covered by RFA and the journalists who cover them. I'm joined by Matt Pennington, who heads up RFA's Southeast Asian Services. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm doing well, Paul. How are you? Pretty good. Ten months since China imposed a tough national security law on Hong Kong, authorities are moving faster than anyone ever expected to erase the differences between the communist-ruled mainland and the so-called special autonomous region of Hong Kong. Hong Kong's journalists have become proverbial canaries in the coal mine for the erosion of freedom. A major publisher has been jailed and prize-winning journalists have been fined, fired, or chosen exile in Taiwan. I'll be asking RFA Cantonese reporter Carmen Wu, who knows some of these reporters personally, what exactly is happening and where this is all headed. But first, Matt will talk to a leader in efforts to protect Cambodia's natural resources from rapacious, corrupt exploitation, whose environmental activist group is under attack by the government. Thanks a lot, Paul. I look forward to that Hong Kong segment a little bit later. Now, it's no secret that Cambodia, under Prime Minister Hun Sen, has made life increasingly difficult for civil society organizations. But few groups have borne the brunt of this intolerance as much as Mother Nature. It's an environmental watchdog that has campaigned vigorously against the destruction of Cambodia's natural habitat. Destruction usually caused in the name of development that profits individuals and companies that are tight with Hun Sen. On May the 5th, five members of Mother Nature were sentenced to between 18 and 20 months in prison by the Phnom Penh Municipal Court for supposed incitement to create social chaos. Amnesty International called the convictions outrageous. I'm joined by Alex Gonzalez-Davidson, who was among those convicted. He's still able to speak with us for reasons that will come apparent as we have our conversation. Welcome, Alex. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So, first of all, what's your reaction to these sentences? We weren't expecting such a harsh sentence, to be very honest. We were expecting uh, a year, uh, perhaps even less than that. They've been in jail since last September of last year. So they've been in jail for, you know, eight, more than eight months, which means that they're going to be in jail for a few more months. So we we very much shocked, very sad. Not so much for the for the three people in jail, because they're really strong activists and are more concerned about the families and are more concerned about the rest of the team. You know, we've got a lot of activists who are not in jail. Most of our activists are not in jail, so I'm more concerned about their level of fear. And of course, I'm, I'm, I'm very much concerned about um, what effect this will have on Cambodian civil society in general and the general population, especially young Cambodian people. Yeah, it seems like a very significant ruling. Can you tell us a bit about why they were arrested in the first place? We've been doing videos which have gone viral inside Cambodia uh, for, for seven years now. And, and we've been doing campaigning with local communities, sometimes successfully. You know, we've managed to stop a hydroelectric dam, which was not about electricity. It was about corruption and logging. We managed to force the Hun Sen regime, the government of Cambodia, to stop large-scale extraction of sand, which was being exported to Singapore, which was devastating uh, local fisheries. And we've exposed many, many other issues. So they, they kind of like, they knew who we were. I myself was uh, detained and deported in 2015 before the three guys are in jail. Now we've had five people in jail before. So they knew who we were. They were, they were afraid of the effectiveness of our campaign. We started two campaigns. One of them was 
trying to protect the nation's biggest island, which is very pristine and beautiful. And so we did a, we started a campaign on that. And then we started another campaign on trying to stop the government to continue filling in cities large as lake, which is the Tompun uh, Lake slash wetlands. So that was, our, that was the last campaign the, the people, the activists in jail did. So a campaign in terms of like media interviews with Radio Free Asia, for example, in Khmer, videos. And then we decided to do a one woman march walking for three kilometers, all dressed in white alone. And another woman, a member of the, uh, you know, 19 year old, that's her name. She would be recording and, and live streaming. And then Rotan, the name of the guy who's in jail, he would be basically in the conversation from his own home, live streaming it through social media. So that was what, you know, that was our plan. And the idea was to walk towards the residence of the Prime Minister. A few hours before that march started, they arrested the, the three activists and confiscated pretty much everything that the organization owned, cameras, laptops, etc. So basically showing zero tolerance for a peaceful demonstration. I mean, it wasn't really even a demonstration. We knew that demonstrations are risky in Cambodia. There have been some activists uh, quite close to us, jailed a few weeks before for demonstrating, protesting. So we thought, let's not demonstrate. Let's not protest. Don't, don't hold any signs. Don't ask for people to come and join you. Just walk alone and we will get our audience through social media. You don't need, you, you know, it's too risky to even call it a demonstration, but they still you know, they still they still arrested them and they were quickly charged and they were sent to pretrial detention where, you know, they've been since September. I understand that you were convicted and sentenced to conspiracy to incitement, although you weren't actually in Cambodia at the time. And also you weren't able to attend your trial. So can you tell us a bit about that? This is the second time that this happens to me. The first time was in, in, in late 2015 and I demanded my right to be present in the trial. It was a different campaign. This was uh, illegal extraction of sand to, to export to Singapore. Well, basically the court summons me, you know, they've charged me, they've, they've issued arrest warrant, uh, but the Ministry of Interior, which is in charge of issuing visas, has never uh, agreed to issue me a visa, give me a visa so I could defend myself in, in, in trial. So this time, the same thing. Uh, my lawyer asked again and again, but the court this time was even more obscure than the last time. They they didn't even they didn't they didn't even allow the lawyer to uh, make public the documents which prove that I have been accused because they knew that I could you know, I would use those documents to publicly say well I'm more than happy to go to Cambodia uh, even if that means jail time so at the very least I can expose to you know a quite large. Uh, audience inside Cambodia and outside Cambodia, the whole travesty of it all. So, um, yes, I've been charged with a conspiracy to incite related to this weird article they have connected to social disorder, social chaos, even though, you know, as you, as you say, I've been in the country for over six years and all we do is videos on Facebook. We're not a political party. We don't, we're not even engaged in large scale protests. So, quite telling of, of the level of par paranoia that the Hun Sen regime is uh, is currently going through, I think. Can we step back a little bit and you tell us how you got involved in Cambodia in the in the first place? I mean, you're renowned for your ability to, to speak Khmer language so well, which I think has been a driving force in 
in your success as an activist. I mean, how did you end up in Cambodia? I ended up in Cambodia not for activism reasons and not for nature protection reasons. I just went there as a 21-year-old thinking it's a good way to escape uh, European winters and Spanish national, but before that I was in England. And, you know, European winters can be harsh. So when I got to Cambodia, I thought this is a nice place to be for a few months, a year. And I was working as an English teacher. And I did that for several years, uh, seven years. And then eventually my Khmer language got good enough so that I could uh, be a translator. So I was translating from English to Khmer. And then in 2010, 2011, I came to the realization that under the facade of, of you know, development, the, the destruction of the environment uh, was being done at an alarming rate. I mean, I had read about it in reports on you know, independent media, but in 2010-11, I just came across it. You know, I, I, I understood uh, how it was being done, why it was being done, by who, because I was, you know, I was able to understand the context and the language, and I was able to, I was able to speak with people who were who were being affected by these hydroelectric dams, uh, gold mining, logging, uh, forced land evictions. And I understood that this was very much so a state-sponsored crime done under the facade of uh, development. And then in 2012, a activist who I had been passing information on, because back then I was still in the private sector working as a translator, he was shot. Chutwati is a very well-known activist. He was shot in his car, April 2012. And the day he was shot, I decided that it was my turn to become more public about it, or at least less fearful, because I was quite fearful. So 2012-2013, I started uh, doing videos on Facebook, I started doing interviews in Khmer uh, and with international media about, you know, some of the most uh, pressing environmental issues, and um, it didn't, it took the, the Hun dictatorship a year and a half for them to deport me. I saw myself uh, blacklisted. That does not stop me from continuing to work remotely or meeting our activists in places like Thailand, etc., and helping as much as I can from a distance. And, I, and, and my fight towards a better environment or a, you know, the protection of the environmental resources and, of course, better human rights in Cambodia is going to continue, uh, despite, you know, the massive obstacles that are, seem to be growing by the day. Yeah. I mean, Hun Sen has always been ruthless, you know, in, in terms of suppressing mm -hmm. political opponents or dissent. But it seems a situation for anyone who speaks out against the government or, you know, against their interests has gotten worse in, in the past few years. I mean, can NGOs like Mother Nature still operate effectively? Well, since the last arrest and confiscation of pretty much everything we own, we continue to do investigations and videos. We have the obstacle of COVID-19, so it's not easy to move around from place to place. But we've continued to do videos. And uh, the difference now with the videos that we used to do is that our activists have to hide their faces and we have to distort their voices because I think, you know, it's pretty clear that they will be jailed automatically if they uh, don't disguise their identities. Uh, other than that, we can continue doing it, but I agree that the space for civil society, opposition party, independent media uh, to operate, to, to you know, tell the truth, uh, or to do their job is, as, is, is shrinking alarmingly. You know, and, and, and this has been the case since 2000 and, uh, late 2015. I mean, it was never a healthy democracy anyway, but uh, it was improving 
sort of thing. And then in t late 2015, you just see this dismantling step by step of you know the few uh, good things that Cambodia had. For example, quite a healthy civil society sector activism, a few independent media outlets which were quite strong. Of course, Radio Free Asia was one of them, and and the Hun Sen regime has been attacking them relentlessly. And I think there's two reasons behind that. One of them is um, the influence of China. I think the Chinese Communist Party has agreed to to support them geopolitically and economically. And the second reason, I think, is that the Hun Sen regime has realized that this is what they have to do to stay in charge, because if they continue with this half-baked democracy, half-baked elections, even if they are only half free and fair, they will still lose because their popularity levels are basically plummeting. So Hun Sen and his cronies realize that if they want to cling on to power and continue making billions and billions out of the you know, exploitation of natural resources, corruption, etc., they have to basically eliminate all forms of opposition. Otherwise, they're going, to, they're going to have a very, very difficult time. So, Alex, are there still many young people out there who are willing to take the risk and engage in this kind of environmental campaigning that you're involved in and which it seems the country definitely needs? Yes. And no, I think that I think that after after such a repressive move, you know, jailing people relentlessly since August of last year for doing a video or for saying that they're going to do a video, or for uh, cycling, you know, or, or basically expressing one's opinion, that scares people. And, and of course, just two days ago, when there was that really harsh guilty verdict, it will it will definitely scare a lot of people, but it will also create new activists. So there's a lot of people, a lot of young people who will be so scandalized by it that they will become activists. I think there's a lot of new, there's a lot of young people who decide to start uh, going down the path of activism. Now, there's one thing I, I say to them, and I speak daily with people like that, is that the status quo has changed. So we have to be smart. You know, it's, you have to be smart on digital security, physical security. You can't just do the things that you were doing before because that could automatically mean jail. So go ahead, but stay safe, stay smart, but do go ahead. Don't just, you know, bury your head in the sand because that's not going to save the country's natural resources. Alex, thank you so much for telling us about the situation of the mother nature activists in Cambodia and the continuing campaign to defend the country's environment. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. My guest this week is Carmen Wu of the RFA Cantonese Service. And Carmen grew up in Hong Kong and has worked as a journalist in Hong Kong and has also worked alongside some of the reporters that are now getting in trouble under the national security law and other policies. Thank you for making time for us today, Carmen. How are you? Thank you, Paul, for having me again. Well, almost every week brings more bad news for the free press in Hong Kong, from the jailing of Apple Daily founder Jimmy Lai to the destruction of past stories by RTHK, the official broadcaster. What stands out in your mind as the most troubling and significant threat to press freedom in Hong Kong these days? Time is really hard for being a journalist in Hong Kong nowadays. I would say I would like to highlight the crackdown on Apple Daily, uh, which I mean, all of you know, it is one of the only remaining few pro-democracy newspaper in Hong Kong now. As soon as Jimmy Lai was sentenced to 12 months because of his role in, in, a, in a peaceful demonstration, China-backed newspaper called Tai Kong Po urged publicly in, 
in the paper, the Abu Dhabi has to be banned. It is very threatening because a lot of my friends now working currently in Apple Daily, they are very afraid. A number, quite a number of the staff, including a younger journalists to the senior top management level, they already resigned. And some of them flee Hong Kong already. Most of them flee to United, United Kingdom because they test the BNO passport. Sure. Yes, and one of my friends is now considering fleeing to United States to seek asylum here in United States. But yes, they are very afraid and scared. Sure. Well, can I ask now the the mm. the, the Taikung Bao or Dagong Bao in Mandarin, Taikung Bao, mm. they are not really an independent uh, newspaper. They they have Communist Party control over them. So right. was there do you do you view their request to ban the Apple Daily as something that originated as an idea in Beijing? Everyone understand Taikung Bao is controlled by the, the Chinese government. What they said is just expressing what the Chinese government, the Beijing government thinking. It is too obvious. Sure. It is, it is too obvious that it is Chinese government's plan. Sure. They have very heavy fingerprints on those kind of things. Can you compare for us the popularity of the Apple Daily versus the communist paper that you talked about? Oh, wow. Apple Daily is the most popular newspaper in Hong Kong, I would say. And they can even, they are the only, I think there are only one or two newspaper in Hong Kong running for subscription system. That means they are highly supported by the Hong Kong people. That's why they can run a subscription system because in Hong Kong, especially the younger generation, they highly relied on the news from the Apple Daily. And for the Communist Party uh, or the China-backed state-run newspaper like Taikung Po, I think no one read it. Sure, they're given away or they're put yeah. in libraries and schools and things like this. Right. That's so. true on the mainland as well. It's not just the Apple Daily, as we've reported in English as well. There's a lot of trouble over at RTHK. That's Radio and Television Hong Kong. Right. What happened over there that you reported recently? One of the biggest problem is Bao Choi. She is prize-winning director. She just made a documentary on to expose how Hong Kong police mishandled an incident that happened in Yunlong. The incident was some gangsters in Yunlong attacked peaceful protesters and even common people, ordinary citizens. But the police seems like they are biased and um, just didn't investigate on the gangsters. So that's why Pao Choi wants to make, try to make an investigation, but her investigation was fined by the court for Hong Kong dollars, $6,000. Sure. We saw pictures of her crying in court because, and she wasn't crying about the $6,000. She was crying about the higher principle of journalism, it seemed. Right. It is not a matter of money. $6,000 doesn't mean anything, but the right of the journalist to investigate is being taken away. This is very heartbroken. I, I, I think that is why Pao Choi cried outside the court because she did nothing wrong, I think. The other thing is Nabella. Her contract was refused to be renewed by RTHK because she asked a very tough questions to the chief executive, Carrie Lam. Nabella, I know her in person and I had 
uh, worked with her several times. I would say she is a very polite, professional, and refined person. If you have ever seen her performance on TV, she is a Pakistani Hong Konger, but she can speak fluent and very accurate Cantonese. Mm-hmm. Can I ask? It was was her question also related to the incident at Yuanlong and the police behavior, or was it something else? I'm not very sure if that related to the incident in Yuanlong, but it is definitely related to how the Hong Kong police and the Hong Kong government investigate the the whole demonstration, the whole protest between the government and the protester. Indeed, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But on RTHK. They also recently ordered uh, their staff to delete old stories, which is not mm-hmm. something journalists like to do. Do you mm-hmm. know anything about that? Yes, I noticed that. And this is also crazy. It make this this make me feel like no difference from any any Chinese state-run media. You know, in some of the media in in China, if they write something wrong. <laughs> the government will ask them to delete something, and then you will find 404 not found it. Right? Very, it's all, yeah. always happened in in the very common phenomenon in China, but now it happened in Hong Kong. Yeah, Hong that's Kong. that's shocking. Even even yeah, if shocking. if you don't know the particulars, like an ordinary person, and you just hear the layout things, it just doesn't look good. And then when you know the particulars, it's even worse. And a lot of this journalistic trouble flows from that attack on the protesters, August 31st, 2019. The uh, gangsters that were beating people, the uh, Hong Kong journalist named Wu Gin, who works for what, DBC Channel, he mm. won an, a human rights award for his reporting, but had to flee to Taiwan. Mm. Uh, what What do you know about that case? I don't know much about Mr. Wu, but I think it is not surprising. <laughs> For journalists fleeing to Taiwan, I also already told you that some of the re- reporters, journalists from Apple Daily, they already flee to United Kingdom. So it is not surprising to me. I, I think a lot of Hong Kong people, they, they are expecting more and more journalists fleeing Hong Kong because of their work. Sure. I've heard talk that the Taiwan might end up being a center for Hong Kong journalism, keeping an eye on China and serving the wider community. But there we have a language problem too, don't we? I mean, Cantonese versus Mandarin, not everyone mm-hmm. speaks both languages, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, we can we can see a lot more and more Hong Kong people now, not only the journalists, but also a lot of younger generation, maybe people around my age, 30 something, they also flee to Taiwan because it is easier for them. It is closer to Hong Kong, everything, the culture, the, the food, the language. They, they, I mean, most Hong Kong people can speak Mandarin also. So I think when more and more Hong Kong people flee to Taiwan, and we can set up uh, like a um, Hong Kong community. So I think it is possible for the Hong Kong community in Taiwan to, to help keep Hong Kong's news and Hong Kong's information there. Um, maybe you don't know this, but I'll, I'll ask in general. Oh. I've, I've often wondered whether the South China Morning Post mm. will also come under these kind of pressures that we've seen on oh. Apple Daily and others, but maybe they have a little bit of a cushion because they write in English. What are mm. your thoughts on that? South China Morning Post, they, they are now owned by Jet Ma. 
entrepreneur of Alibaba, their their reports, their stance, I mean, already a little bit pro-China or some kind of totally different from what I knew when I was small. I see. So they already changed. And um, I'm not sure if, if you guys know another pro-China media called Phoenix TV. Sure. Phoenix TV, yes, they just sold their shares to a Beijing-backed publisher. So I think with these kind of examples, I'm not surprising that maybe later on, SEMPN need to be like maybe asked by the Beijing government, you have to sell some of your shares. This may happen, so nothing can be guaranteed. And I'm yes, it may be a little bit worrying too in SNP. Sure. Mm. And RFA, we are working on mm. the ground in Hong Kong. How are your colleagues in Hong Kong for RFA? Mm. How are they adjusting to this new environment? Wow, I would say they are so brave and do their job very well and professionally. I would say they are they are still strong. The reporters in our thing in Hong Kong, they will work as long as they can. <laughs> Can't be easy to plan a career with those mm. kind of uh, potential dangers on the horizon. Well, Carmen, mm. I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy day to thank explain so. some information about your hometown to us. It, it probably hits you harder because you're born and raised in Hong Kong. Mm, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks, Carmen and Paul, for that taste of the journalist's plight in Hong Kong. These are certainly tough days for the free press there. I don't think any of us imagined, say, three or four years ago, Paul, that the transformation would be so rapid in Hong Kong and that the attack on the fourth estate would happen so quickly. Honestly, Matt, I struggle to think of an example in modern history of such a precipitous decline in freedom, and it's only just getting underway. Please join us again next week for another sampling of RFA's coverage. Until then, you can visit our website, rfa.org. Our past podcasts are available on platforms like Spotify and iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you have any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. It stands for Eyes on Asia. I'm Paul Eckert with Radio Free Asia with Matt Pennington. This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again.